Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start And Jane Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis This is MJ Network MJ, a memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce I am so excited We have Isaac Wright Jr., the author of Mark for Life an empowering member of a man's life and freedom cut short when wrongly accused of being accused of a drug pen. Hear this story and understand how hard he worked and the obstacles he overcame to gain his freedom and now helping others in the same place. Good morning, and how are you? I'm so excited that you're here. Good morning, good morning. Uh, glad, glad, I'm, I'm glad you allowed me to be on. Thank you so much. I, I am so thrilled. I told somebody this morning in the Bagel Place about your book and about uh, what you do, and he actually knew it. He actually read it. Oh, wow. And I was impressed, yeah. <laughs> so wow. I have your questions in front of me. I did add a few because I want to make sure that everybody gets the, that's the point. This is a very powerful book, and I read it three times because I wanted oh, to make you. sure that I got it. In life, there are many instances when misconceptions and wrong conclusions are drawn, impacting the lives of many, or in this case, yours. Why did you choose to share the story, and how exactly did it unfold from the start? This is very powerful, people. Well, you know, my my decision to, to tell the story is directly uh, related to, um, to the thing that I think is most important when it comes down mm-hmm. to you know, how we make changes for the better in the system, and that is the public's right to know. Mm-hmm. The public has a specific right to know what's going on in government, how systems are being actually ran versus how they're told that, that they're ran. And when the public is fully informed uh, about what happens in the system, they're in a better position to, 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 to voice their 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 anger um, and their how should I say um, adamant about making changes for the better. Uh, I think one of the one of the problems that we have uh, in the system is that lack of knowledge that um, that mm-hmm. gloss over the real facts that's happening. So I decided to write the book because I believe that the public uh, had a right to know exactly what happened, uh, how the system is ran. And, and how those things that are going on in the system can eventually affect their lives, either directly or indirectly. I, I agree with you, because I've read an awful lot of books about people wrongly accused. As a matter of fact, the last book I just wrote, they just came out two weeks ago, Faces Behind the Stones, Accusations, talks about people that were wrongly accused, and they're two stories that I was allowed to write. And people whose voices were silent. And I, you know something, when, when you write this, this is great because people are going to lose faith in the system and they're going to think that it's a hopeless case. So by reading your book, maybe they'll have some understanding of, yeah, this could really happen. So tell us. 
Yeah, and I and I just just to expound on that because I, I think this is is very important for the public to know. Um, you know, there, there's there's no need to lose hope um, on a system or for a system that actually is designed to work and to work properly. The issue, you know, the issue, and this is very important. The issue that we have uh, in this country is not a system that's broken. I mean, we hear that all the time. The issue mm-hmm. that we have in this country are people uh, who should not be in the positions that they are in uh, mm-hmm. as it relates to running the system. It's not the system that's a problem. It is the people and the decisions that they make that causes these problems. And so, and so that's the reason why, um, you know, the right to know is so important and the need for the people to stand up, you know, and start doing something about these issues because it's not a broken uh, uh, system that we have. It's a, it's a problem with the people that, that's running it. I agree with you. And if you listen to the news, you can really tell that, that it's really sad. And all the things that happened to you and the people that were running it, it's even sadder because I'm sure it's still going on, like, like you said. Absolutely. So, Tell us about your childhood and background and how it played an interesting a part in your life. So that was really interesting. Yeah, you know, my father was in the military. He spent mm-hmm. 30 years in the military. He fought in, in two wars. And, you know, we were raised in a household. I mean, he had five boys, so he had his own little platoon. And, uh, you know, he raised us um, mm. with, with certain attributes. Uh, he instilled in us honor. Uh, discipline, uh, respect for authority, mm. um, you know, and respect and respect for each other, uh, to fight for what you believe in, you know, no matter what the cost. Uh, and so those things, you know, raising up uh, most of my, and I shouldn't say most, but all of my uh, young and teenage uh, years until I was an adult under under the guiding hands of a person who, you know, believed in this country, who fought in two wars for this country, uh, and, and who understood the challenges uh, that we as young black men were going to face in the world. Growing mm-hmm. up in a, in a household that prepared us for that, uh, not only was it enlightening, but it was, you know, it was, a, it was an incredible blessing. Um, and so that was something that, that you know, put me in a position uh, to be not only an intuitive person, but to have the proper um, judgment when it came down to assessing things that happened to me and to understand the need um, and the part that I had to play uh, in society to make society a better place. And and going to prison, you know, was a, was a part of that struggle, was a part of Mm. put me in a position where I had to help people, where I had to show, you know, uh, who I was as an individual and what I believed in and how important we are to each other in terms of, you know, making sure that that we're moving forward in the world in in ways that are most productive uh, and and in ways that has a affinity for, you know, for humanity and human nature. I couldn't believe it. When I read what you went through when you first were there, I was like, oh, my God. I don't know how you understood what they were doing. And it got me so angry because it was so wrong. I knew from the start that it was wrong. I was like, like how how could they do that? So tell us, tell us about the Somerset prosecutor, mm-hmm. why he why he felt he was above the law, and I really hated him. <laughs> you know, it's it's easy it's easy for for villains to be hated, and yeah, and there's you know it's in in in, in a lot of respects, uh, rightfully so. But you, you mm-hmm. have to pull back some of the covers, and you have to kind mm-hmm. of kind of get a feeling on 
on, you know, what creates these things. And when it comes down to the system, a villain cannot be a villain unless he's made a villain. Um, uh-huh. And a villain is not a villain because he created himself. And, and this is this is important for me to say because, you know, the only the only way that the prosecutor could have done what he was able to do was because he was empowered to do it by others. You know, it wasn't because he just came up and he was born with this omnipotence, with this authority. Mm. He was given this authority. And when you're given authority like that, when, when, there's, when there's flaws in you as a human being and other people in power around you see those flaws, and instead of them correcting it or getting rid of it, they feed it, uh, then they're the problem. They're the ones who create this villain. It's not the individual villain that creates himself. Mm-hmm. It's the people around that empower him to do the wrong thing that creates this villain. And so Nicholas Bissell was one of those individuals. He was an individual uh, that corruptly ran a prosecutor's office uh, like a criminal organization and you have to remember the people in the prosecutor's office a lot of them were detectives they were police because the prosecutors have their own mm-hmm. police and a lot of people don't know that and so when you have when you have law enforcement uh together with uh someone that represents the state engaging in illegal conduct and enriching mm-hmm. themselves then who's going to you know when you say a person is above the law you you have to look at that technically. Technically, yeah. it's and it's and it's it's you know it's it's unfortunate that I'm getting ready to say this, but technically, he was above the law, and yeah. and the reason why the reason why that's important for the public to know why he was above the law and why I'm saying that is because anytime you are the enforcer of the law, and you have the authority to use your discretion, it allows you to put yourself above the law. And so, and so everyone that has the authority and the power under the Constitution and under the laws of the, of the government um, to enforce laws, they have an inherent discretionary duty to do the right thing. If they choose to do the wrong thing, then guess what? Guess where they're at? They're above the law because they've made a choice to do something opposite that the law dictates, and they have the power to do that. So you are above the law, and it's only it's only until someone else comes along mm. and says, "No, we're not going to accept that. You're going to answer for that." It's only when someone else comes along and says that uh, are they able to be controlled and are they able to be subject to the law. But for the most part, law enforcement officers they 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 have the ability to operate above the law. Yes, mm. I've seen it, <laughs> and I've I've know how to, I know how that feels. And I also know yeah. that there are, you know, litigators, and unfortunately I can't say how on the air, that feel that they're above the law, and they're, and they're given the latitude by the other side that you're suppo- that's supposed to defend you because they're afraid to tell them you can't do that. It's it's scary. Yeah. And, and, they just, and they justify it in their own mind. They know they're wrong, and, but they uh, don't care. Absolutely. And, and the reason why they do that, you know, and this is, this is an unfortunate thing about, you know, about defense mm. work. You know, most when you when you're beat down every day on a day to day basis, mm-hmm. you give up hope. You lose. It, you you begin to. Be, it's, it's like um, if you can't beat them, join them. That that's exactly what happens. You mm-hmm. have to you have to look at the reality of a of a of what a defense attorney is up against. He's up against uh, an organization with unlimited resources. He's outmanned. He's outgunned, mm-hmm. and he's and he's outfinanced. All right. 
the judges usually lean toward the state. And when you come up against that kind of power and you don't have other means to engage it and to defeat it, mm. you, become a part, you become a part of it eventually. Um, and it's, like I said, it's a if you can't beat them, join them kind of scenario. And that, that actually mm-hmm. helps. Uh, that, that, I shouldn't say help. That, that kind of uh, creates a stone thrown at the wall when it comes down to the rights that we have as citizens. So, so let me say mm-hmm. this so that so – because that, this is very important, so that mm-hmm. the people listen and understand how this works. You know, you, have, you, you see a lot of, you see a lot of uh, negative, negative press sometimes about defense attorneys um, mm-hmm. when they represent defendants who uh, have, a, have a bad reputation for the act, either, either because they have, a, they have a, a past, a criminal past, or because the specific accusations against them, you know, are repulsive. But in any event, you know, they have this client that they've helped and they've helped successfully, and everybody is up in arms with this. And, you know, you, the prosecutors speak out, you know, the, the, mm. the, the technical issue and this man, uh, you know, got relief and he shouldn't have got relief. It's all of these, all of this thing, all of these negative things that you hear with a defense mm. attorney um, is successful in, in a case that, you know, is, is not uh, a case that, that the public is, is fond of. But let me explain something that's very, very important so that the public can understand. Mm-hmm. The guilty is at the front lines of injustice. And when you, when you it's because it's easier for law enforcement um, to break laws and sending a guilty person to prison, it's very easy for them to do that, specifically because he's guilty and, mm-hmm. and, and because the public doesn't care. But here's what happens. This is the problem. And here's why defense attorneys are probably – uh, some of the most important people on earth in a civilized mm-hmm. society. When you get stopped by a police and the police says you have the right, right to remain silent, anything you say can and will be used against you, we all know those rights. That right, that particular right is a part of our culture, okay? And that protects the innocent as well as the guilty, but it's mainly to protect innocent people when they encounter police or when they're accused of something that they may not have done. The reason why that the reason why that right even exists is because a defense attorney represented someone that was guilty, and the United States Supreme Court decided based on the facts that you know what, in order to protect the general public, we're going to require police officers to inform citizens of their rights. A defense attorney did that. You have to understand that the government wants to chisel away at rights because they mm. want to make it easier to prosecute and convict. And defense attorney's job is to protect the rights. So if they, if a defense attorney makes a decision or gets a decision made in a person's case that is guilty that protects a specific right, what he's actually done is he has, he has strengthened the rights of everyone who's innocent. Because mm. you, you cannot you cannot protect someone's right if a person's not going through the system. There's no case or controversy. So that's why defense attorneys are so so very very important. Because what they do, they actually strengthen the rights, and they or what they're supposed to do is strengthen the rights and protect the rights of the innocent by moving through the system with people who are both guilty and not guilty, or who are guilty but are overcharged or oversentenced. 
and, and that's what's important for the public to know, mm. that when they, when they sit back and they look at all the rights that they retain, it's not because the government has chosen to give them these rights and to protect these rights. They want to take those rights away. It's because defense attorneys and other civil rights organizations are continually fighting to retain and to maintain those rights that we have as citizens. Yeah, I, I can understand it. I see it. So with this really, I don't know how you did this, you were in jail for quite a number of years. Yeah. And I know that you you defended yourself in the first time. How how come it took so long for the second trial? And what made you decide, <laughs> I have to ask this question, because people are going to want to know. What made you decide to get your strength to become a lawyer? I was like so, I said, this is fantastic. I couldn't wait for you to get your license and prove to everybody that you could do this yourself. <laughs> you know, um, you come to the realization when things happen to you that you don't quite understand, you come to the realization that there's a, there's a divine intervention that's taking place mm-hmm. and, uh, and, that, and that you go through certain things to prepare you for other things. And so when I, when I look back on the injustice and, and while these things were happening and I saw how different I was than everyone else, when I got arrested, when I actually stayed in jail for almost two years waiting to go to trial, uh, helping people when I got to prison mm-hmm. and I was helping people and I was being victorious, I realized that there was something different about me. You know, and I, and I say this all the time. You know, when I went to prison, I was very successful. I, um, I was a very successful uh, producer, manager. I uh, had a, a record label. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife was selling millions of records with a, a three-girl group called the Cover Girls. We were very successful, and, and I thought I was on top of the world. Uh, but when I went to prison and I picked up the first law book and I realized that, you know, it, it was like I was doing it all my life, um, that's when I found myself. I had no idea who I was until I actually mm-hmm. went to prison and I found myself. I found my calling in prison. I understood what God was preparing me to do, and you know, I I I, uh, I walked the course. It was a it was an extremely difficult course. I was in a maximum security prison, 23 hour lockdown. Uh, every day was a day, you know, you struggled to stay alive, and and going through that 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 violent uh, environment, uh, I also was helping other people, and at the same time, uh, trying to help myself. Um, protecting uh, inmates from uh, various violence against them towards the guard from the guards and, and various uh, incredibly inhumane conditions within the prison. All of these things were coming at me at one time, and I had to find a way uh, to juggle it. With God's help, I did, and it was uh, it was a natural progression from coming out of prison uh, to going now into and to prepare myself doing seven years. Um, in college uh, to get a law degree. So, you know, I, I, it was a part of, a, I believe, what was a calling. And, and as an mm-hmm. attorney today, I'm, I'm one of the most sought-after attorneys in the country, um, and I'm continuing to, to help people and, and try to make changes and protect the rights um, of the average citizen. That's, that's what I do, and that's what I've dedicated my life to doing. I wonder how many people wouldn't come out angrier than they were before and just say, well, why, why should I care? And the, I know I've read, I must have read, I don't know how many books with, with police, with guards, with corrupt guards, and people getting, I, I don't know how many books I've read, maybe 10,000, maybe more. But when I read this, which really got me, and I'm saying, this man didn't do anything, 
and yet they wrongly accused him, and that and that's horrible. So when you decide that you're going to defend someone, how do you decide who to defend, and how do you know if this person, well, you really don't, you have to figure this out, that they're innocent or not? Because this is important um, that people have to understand. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very selective in who I de- decide to defend. Um, mm. And so, and this is, this is what's important for me. Uh, it's not whether a person is, is guilty or innocent, mm. in, but, but that's significant. What's important to me is whether or not I can make a difference for the better in the system. That's what's mm-hmm. important to me. Uh, because what people have to understand is that the most people who are guilty, they really don't want to, they, they want to resolve. They, they want to plead guilty. They want to take responsibility mm. for what they've done. Most people that are guilty actually want to do that. What they don't want is to be treated harshly. They don't want to get life in prison because it was a third strike and they stole a bicycle. You know, it's, it's those kinds of things that, that, that people mm-hmm. are, are very afraid of in the system. It's the, it's the total annihilation uh, of the human being uh, mm. that I protect against. And so my first, my first rule is whether or not this is a case that is important enough for me to make changes for the better in the system. Then, you know, when a person is innocent, it's even, it's even you know, that's icing on the cake for me. But the very first thing that I think of is can I help this person and will this case um, benefit the innocent? People out there, you know, mm-hmm. going on on their everyday lives who can also get caught up into something that they had nothing to do with. Will, will, will I be able to make certain changes that will increase the protection of, of the people that are innocent? And so those are the two, you know, ground rules for me is, is whether I, mm-hmm. I can make a change, whether I can make a difference, um, and whether this case is important enough uh, for me to get involved in it, i.e., he could be innocent, or you know they may want want him to do life in prison for, like I said, for stealing a bicycle. Those things I, I step <laughs> into because what's important is that the system understands, the prosecutors and the police understands that there's checks and balances. That yes, this person may have done the wrong thing. He may have made the wrong decision, and yes, he has to answer for the things that he did, like we all do. But there is a limit to everything. You can't give him a life sentence for a nonviolent crime because he's this third time committing a crime and he stole a bicycle. Mm. The law may allow you to do that, but that's really an, that's really a, an attack on humanity when you send a man to prison for the rest of his life because he stole a bicycle. And, and, and let me say, tell you why that's important. When you really look at crimes, the commission of crimes, and you take away violent crimes, because most crimes are nonviolent crimes. Eighty mm. percent of the crimes that are committed are nonviolent. When you step back and you take a look at nonviolent crimes, most of them are crimes of survival. People are out there trying to survive, or they have other issues that are causing them to be in survival mode, like drugs or alcohol and, and things mm. like that. But nonviolent crimes are mostly crimes of survival. Why should a man spend 30, 40 years, 50 years, life in prison for creating a nonviolent crime, um, and it's a crime of survival. Why should that happen? There should, be a, should he answer for the crime? Should he answer for what he did? Of course, but there should be other considerations when it comes down to the commission of crimes that will allow a prosecutor and the police to say, okay, listen, you have to answer for this, 
But here are the ways that not only are you going to answer for it, but here are the ways that we're going to try to make things better for you uh, in life. Uh, but the system's not set up to do that, and so we're going to have a continuing cycle of, of crime and punishment uh, that impregnates our jails and prisons in ways that, that are, that are um, more outlandish than any country in the world. We have, think of it like this, China has almost 2 billion people. Mm. And China has almost 2 billion people, and they have the highest incarceration rate over the United States by about 200,000. Mm. They have about 1.6 million people in prison. We have about 1.4 million people in prison. We have a 300 million population, and they have almost 2 billion population. Other than that, we're number two in, the, in, in, in terms of putting people in prison, in terms of having people in prison. We're number two in the world, and we're only outmatched by a country that has three times our population, over three times our population. So you have to... Yeah, yeah. That's unbelievable. I I reviewed, I'm trying to remember the name of the book. It was a long time ago that there was a man that was sent to prison for having like 20 milligrams of cocaine or something for 60 Mm -hmm. years. And, yeah, I reviewed the book, and he wanted to come on my show, but the prison wouldn't let him. So he answered my questions, so I got to read his answers. And I don't know whatever happened to him. It was so sad because he didn't deserve to be there for, for, for 60 you know, years. But, but, but you know, when, you, when, you, when you're looking at someone as less human or when you look at them yeah. and you don't see yourself, you don't have any problems, you know, putting a person in prison for it's long sad. periods of time like that. Uh, knowing that they have to get out one day, and then when they mm. get out one day, then what? what have you created for society? And this is the thing that we have to think about. When we put mm. people in prison, what are we creating for society when most of these people are going to one day yeah. get out and walk the street? You know, and and, that, and that's, a, that's a serious, serious issue. One of the things that people have to understand, too, that they don't know is that the United States uh, is the country who actually created prisons. We created the mm. prison system uh, with, um, I think it was, I think it was Benjamin Franklin and the Quakers in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. They, they, they decided that some of the punishment that they were meshing out uh, were inhumane uh, and uh, were were no longer acceptable in a civilized society, and they looked for um, more humane ways. Uh, of punishing people. And so they created the prison system uh, because it was designed for people to be in solitude and to seek penitence uh, in solitude. Uh, That eventually evolved into a complex, an industrial complex now that has uh, infected the entire world. Just about every country on earth, um, their prison system is in some way designed behind the ones that we have designed in the United States. It's 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 scary. I mean, and it sets a bad tone for kids. I mean, I yeah. taught for 36 years in a tough school in the Bronx, and I was lucky. <laughs> I mean, kids, I never had students that dared to come up against me and try to do anything wrong. They didn't. They just knew better. I'm little. And yet they right. knew it was better to stay on my good side. But I saw parents, people outside. I saw drugs outside. I saw them prostitution ring outside the school, and I saw one of my one of the students in the school get arrested for drugs. And it was like mm-hmm. it just broke my heart. It said a bad bad situation. 
because I don't know. I, I read the I read the news now and everything, and there's so many kids killing people in schools. Yeah. And, and setting a bad example, and I, I don't know yeah. if it's it's a society or if it's their parents or it's just the school stopped caring. It's scary. Well, well, you know, one of the things that you also have to look at, and it, it goes back to prisons, and I mean, and there's a lot of information mm. uh, in my in my in my book, but one of the things mm-hmm. that you have to look at is that, you know, there's a lot of good men uh, in prison. And and what happens with is is that when you remove the leadership from a mm-hmm. community and you put them in prison, the next generation is going to run astray because mm-hmm. the leadership is gone. Uh, and that's one of the things that has happened in you know in our communities is that a lot of these guys, um, you know, that the younger generation looked up to, they go to prison. They're, they're sent to prison. They're sent to prison for long periods of time, and for the younger generation, that becomes a symbol. You know, mm-hmm. going to prison uh, actually becomes a symbol. Uh, so, so it's it's it, it perpetuates. You know, when you you continue to just uh, mm. just just distract or extract from the community, uh, black men by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions uh, from our communities, you're going to find a void. Uh, and nine times out of ten, uh, a worst-case scenario is, is going to be what fills those boys, and that's what you're seeing in the street right now. You're seeing, you're seeing the remnants of, of a lot of our leadership being taken away from our communities, uh, and the next generation is out there running amok. That's what you're seeing. It, it bothers me, but what, what makes me proud is that my students – they're not that much younger than me. <laughs> they're in their fifties, mm-hmm. and I get I they're doing so much so many positive things. And one had a birthday the other day, and he made my day. He said, "Without you, I probably would be in jail." He said, "You yeah. took took me under your wing and wouldn't let it go until you got me to behave and be proud of myself for who I am. You enriched my life." I was like in tears. I said, "And I knew I did." He's he but does you, so many things for for the young community. I said, you know, Michael, you make everybody smile because you really care. So you teach um, law students, right? What do you hope they will gain from reading your book, and Mark for Life? And what do you hope people will learn from reading your story? What about these law students? Are they? Are you? Do you have them in your practice? Do you use them? The uh, what do I use? What again in my practice? Law students? Law students. I was told that that you had a program uh, that you go around to to colleges to talk about your program and how it can help them if they're going to try to become lawyers? Yes, and there's a major, major tour that we're also putting together to do at least 40 uh, law Mm. schools across the country, 40 law schools and higher education facilities across the country. So so the the children, and, and this is, you know, this is a, a cliche, but it's it's very they're very very true. It's so true. The children are our future, and one of the things that I think that and, and it's unfortunate for me to say this, but you, you can see it in our in our everyday lives is that there's certain generations that we just we just cannot mm-hmm. we cannot uh, put an olive branch out to them because it is what it is. Um, a lot of the problems that we that we have in our society are problems based on a generation uh, that. That uh, desires things to go and, and to, move, to move in ways that are not beneficial 
for everyone uh, equally. Uh, but the generations that are coming up have a chance to make a better world for us. They have a chance uh, to make a more inviting world, uh, to make a world where, where equal opportunity is a thing of the past. We don't have to we don't mm. have to scream and yell for it anymore. Uh, and so that's this is this is what motivates me to to to, mm. to talk to the students and to move from college to college because I see our future in them, and it's extremely important for them to understand how very, very, very important they are uh, to not only uh, our future in the next 10 years, but our future in the next 100 years, the next 1,000 years. What they do today can have ramifications uh, for decades or even centuries. Um, And those ramifications is going to depend on whether we continue to excel as a nation or whether Mm. we fall as a nation, you know, whether whether we explode in ways that are in ways of of um, of, of, of uh, positive dominance uh, around the world, or whether we enclose, you know, and mm. become a shadow of our of, of ourselves as a nation, they're the future. They're the ones that's going to dictate that. And and what I see happening today, there's an urgent need to talk to them to to let them understand oh. the oh, important yeah. role that our society. Uh, and so that's why that's why I'm doing it. And, and if I can create you know, a thousand more lawyers, um, then I'm going to do that because lawyers, and, and, and this is important for the, for the public to know also, lawyers are the single, that profession is the single most important profession in a civilized society. And, and, and here's why. What people go through their everyday lives, and what they don't understand is from the mm. time they exit the womb until the time they enter the grave, Every mm. single thing that they do is dictated by some lawyer. Think about this for a second. And, and yeah. I'm going to bring this home. I'm going to bring this home. Right now, we always talk about the Constitution. We talk about how powerful the Constitution is, uh, that mm-hmm. the Constitution is the, is the ultimate law of the, of, the, of the country, that all laws and statutes that are made have to abide and have to conform to the Constitution. We... We move through our entire lives uh, based on a constitutional law, right? Well, mm-hmm. the people that created those documents was dead 300 years. They've been dead. We literally live our lives through laws that were written by people who have been dead for centuries. Think about that for a second. Think about how significant the decisions that these men made hundreds of years ago, and how they continue to affect our lives today. And all of these men were in law. When you look at the success of amendments to the Constitution, you look at what the things that lawyers have done. When you look at legislatures today who make laws, the very first thing they do is that they invoke the, 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 the practice of an attorney, not only to formulate these bills that eventually turns into the law, but to make sure that they comport to the Constitution. Everything you do, if you go to bury someone in the ground, you have to do that based on some kind of regulation mm-hmm. that lawyers lawyers have made. And so you have to understand doctors need lawyers. You know, you have to understand the importance of lawyers in our in a civilized society. And we need them. We need good lawyers out there because they are the ones who dictate the direction that we move in life from day to day. Lawyers do that. The laws that they create, the regulations that they create. The way in which we can build a house is dictated by a lawyer. The way we can sell a house 
is dictated by some lawyer. So you have to there's an innate need uh for 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 good, honest, uh ethical attorneys uh that has the public's best interest in mind and, and, and that is one of the main reasons why I thought it was important for me to go through these colleges to tell my story, to let them understand that through the worst challenges, you know, there's answers, there's ways of not only overcoming it, but there's ways to succeed in the midst of the storm. You know, the book tells tells you everything about how that. there's a lot of secrets in the books about about survival and success. Mm-hmm. Um, and and everyone should read it. And and that's the reason why I'm the, I'm going to always make myself available to the public and specifically. Uh, the educational public, like uh, colleges and universities and law schools. Well, I'll tell you something. As an educator, I, I think maybe high schools might need something so that the kids understand the importance of what you're doing and what happens when you go to prison. So the yeah. title of your book really got me. I got this one, people. Mark for Life started out one way at the beginning, and it changed at the end. And that was very powerful for the last page. So how did it change from the beginning to the end? And what advice would you give anyone that decides to defend the wrongly accused? you you got to admit well, that that's admirable. No, Not too many people would do that. No, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very high mountain to climb uh, because yeah. the government, the system fights harder when they're wrong. Uh, if you're innocent, you're in, you're in far worse trouble than the person who's guilty. Um, because it's the, the embarrassment of that, uh, the liability that's associated with everything that's associated with accusing an innocent person um, of something they didn't do is a piranha in the system, and, and they'll do anything uh, to not admit. They'll double down, fight harder, uh, have people lie on you. They'll do whatever they can uh, not to admit that they were wrong. Um, uh, but but as it relates to you know to me, this this my situation turned out. Um, it began with a, an attempt uh, to extort me uh, for money to, mm. to, to make me um, uh, to make me uh, an informant um, and, and to and to use me to, to hurt mm. other people. I mean that was the thing that was going on at the time. The forfeiture forfeit, forfeiting people's property was real big, and they were setting people up, uh, taking their property, having their friends go to the auctions and purchase it. Uh, it was a very, very difficult time, a very uh, incredibly crazy time in the system during the during the 80s and, and, and early 90s when you know when the war on drugs was at its mm-hmm. height. Uh, corruption was everywhere, and so you know that situation turned into um, a challenge for me because they wanted me to do everything uh, that was against my nature, <laughs> that was against mm-hmm. everything that I stood for, and so I'd rather die uh, than to do that. And I decided to fight. Um, the prosecutor, I remember that he was the head prosecutor at the time. He literally came to the jail the night I was arrested to let me know personally that he was trying my case. Yep. So this was a situation uh, that, you know, they had to, they had dug the grave uh, before, you know, they engaged in the execution. The grave was already dug uh, a long time. Um, but that, you know, that evolved into... Um, seven and a half years in prison where the skills that, that I had naturally, that had God had given me naturally was, had become so acute um, mm. that I was able to get a police officer 
to break the code of silence on the witness stand under oath while testifying and tell, you know, what really happened. Um, and that opened a floodgate. I mean, it was, it was, that was the beginning of the end. That opened a floodgate of people coming out with revelations and, and telling the truth and, 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 you know, testifying how I was set up, um, how they were meant, um, forced to, forced to lie on me. And, um, you know, that, that got me out of prison. That, that, that one, and it, it was a piece of paper that I had found in a civil case. Yeah, I remember. Years you know, it was just a, it was just an incredible thing. It was incredible how you how you found it. But what's more incredible yeah. and, and very admirable is the fact that the prosecutor came up. I remember that. And the fact that you just sat, that you didn't punch him out was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how arrogant and horrible a person. But before I forget, on Tuesday, New York Times author... David Putnam, the scorned, it's a really powerful story. On the 13th, Green Life Murders. On the 15th, um, Homicide Holocaust. And on the 20th, I've got a panel of authors. We're going to talk about who they write, who they write like and um, their style. On the 23rd, somebody we all know and love, T.J. O'Connor, who is in law enforcement. And his book is The Hemingway Deception. And that's just part of what's coming on in February. My show is booked until the end of June. And we were hoping, I was hoping, uh, Isaac, to get Philip Margol in to do a show with you because he's the one that does the Innocence Project. And he's the mm-hmm. one that, that, is into, is, that is into defending people that were wrongly accused. And I don't think he ever lost yeah. anything. But no. are you going to write another book? Are you going to write a book um, citing any of the cases that you work or any of the people? Yes. Uh, this this first book uh, takes me um, from, you know, from childhood to when mm. I walked out of prison. Uh, but everything from the day I walked out of prison to where I'm at now, you know, which was a, a, an entirely separate struggle. I did seven and a half. I, after doing seven and a half years in prison, uh, wow. I did seven years pursuing a law degree. I went to undergraduate and, and graduate school, law school for three years, undergraduate for four years. I um, passed on time, I, you know, passed uh, law school on time, uh, passed the bar, and instead of me getting my license like everyone else, after a couple of weeks they license you when you pass the bar, uh, they investigated me for nine more years before giving oh, me a license. Oh, God. You know, and I had to survive all that time. I was putting a trying to. I, I was putting myself through school, putting my daughter through school, trying to survive. And you know, when you don't give the license, when they don't give you your mm-hmm. license, they know that you can't eat. You can't take care of yeah. yourself with no license. So it was a whole another whole another level of of struggle that I that I went through after getting out that I didn't touch uh, in this book. Um, and it's an, that's an that's an incredible story in and of itself. How I went from. Uh, getting out, going to law school, being investigated for nine more years, surviving uh, mm. all at the same time, and ultimately getting that license, becoming one of the most sought-after attorneys in the country. So that's going to be book two. I can't wait to read it. Seriously. Okay. And what I, what I really love is the back of the book. See, I have it in front of me. Nobody's. My books go to a specific medical professor, provider, who loves me and mm-hmm. says, I can't come to visit him without a book. He's not getting this one. <laughs> no, his wife loves me. I mean, I bring, I read like about 10, 15 in two weeks, seriously. And wow. uh, it's like, yeah, 
to my mother. I was a speed reader. <laughs> and um, what I really like is how you cited in di- different chapters uh, your, re- your uh, bibliography, in a sense, where you found your information and how people can understand more about how you wrote this. And, of course, there's mm-hmm. a great index. But the last paragraph of the, of the book, and it's in front of me. Like I said, nobody's getting this. Um, As my enemies and adversaries fall at my feet, I know that I am far from done. The moment one falls, another rises to take his place. Perhaps one day the natural order of things will bring my mission to an end, but that day is not today, so I can use all the help I can get. I hope to see you out there. That is probably the most powerful sentence in the entire book. Why did you end it like that? And Mark for Life was from one in the beginning and different at the end. I know that, the title. Yeah, you know, I, I ended it that way because this was I, I wanted to I wanted to you know make sure that the essence of who I was was mm-hmm. the last thing that the reader read. That this is mm-hmm. this is it, that is two things that it's not over, and it probably won't be over until the day I take my last breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's an expectation that I have. Uh, for everyone, I know that that the world is a huge world, and 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 when it comes down to one man being out there, you know, trying to fight the system, uh, there's a lot of other organizations out there, but we all individually have our obligations to humanity to make things right when they go wrong, and so I just wanted the reader to understand that I'm in this for the long haul, I'm in it to win it, and I'm in it until I take my last breath, and that I expect that that. This is not something uh, that I'm out there doing alone. I expect that everyone uh, should do their part in making the world a better place for all of us. I wish that everybody did make the world a better place for all of us, and I wish all lawyers cared about what they're doing as much as you do. And yet there are some, unfortunately, that are doing it when it's a monetary gain, just for that and not really concerned about the person that they're defending. That's That's even really sadder. So yes. from reading this and everything, or there, was there any one person in prison or any one person on the outside that gave you the strength to go to go on, or is it just because you decided you were going to do this and get the strength within you? You know, um, the strength. I mean, there was a number of there was a number of things that continued to give me strength. God was one of them. Obviously, I had a daughter. Uh, and this is while I was in. I, you know, I had a I had a daughter that that needed mm. me. She was six years old when I went away. Um, you know, so it was it was family. It was it was obviously mm. it was you know uh, being guided and touched by God. And it was just the just the 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 experience of seeing how much devastation was going on around me, and nobody mm. had any help. Uh, so so those things, all those things, and and the and the 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 innate obsession. Uh, to not give up, like it, I was, I was so um, obsessed with fighting back and with with righting the wrong that they did. Uh, that that in and of itself, that obsession gave me the strength. I mean, it was it, it was a dangerous obsession too because I was in a place where where I yeah. went to sleep and woke back up. You know, a, a guard could have sent in someone in my cell three or four o'clock in the morning uh, to to stab me up while I slept. I mean, there was just so many dangers, but you know that that drive uh, to right the wrong was was that that really kept me kept me going. 
Um, and that was in on the on the street. There was one case mm. uh, as an attorney, as a practicing attorney. Uh, there was one case that really, uh, how should I say, that really revved me up. And this is this was a federal case mm. uh, that I did, where the guy actually committed the crime. He committed the crime, and I'm gonna, I don't want to take too much more of your time on this, but mm-hmm. I want to go through this real quick. This That's guy okay. committed the crime. He he. he um, this was in Passaic, or Patterson, New Jersey. He, him and his friend, he, they got wind that this businessman had about a million dollars in cash stashed in his in his uh, in his um, dresser, in a hidden compartment in the dresser drawer in his bedroom. And him and his his friend dressed up as police officers, mm-hmm. uh, the light car and everything, dressed gun badge, the whole nine yards. They dressed up as police officers to go get this money. Uh, when they got to the house. Um, they broke in. They, they, didn't, they broke in the bedroom, but they, they one of the occupants let them in because they said they were cops. Um, they went in there and started ransacking the bedroom, and one of the occupants realized uh, that, oh, you're looking for my uncle. He moved out two weeks ago. All right. So the guy that they were looking for was gone. There was no money or anything. They left. There was an investigation that occurred. I'm going to move through this very fast. There was an investigation that occurred. Uh, the federal government had to help find these guys. Had to help the state find these guys. They were mm. they were eventually found. All right. The guy that I eventually represented, he confessed. He gave an hour and a half videotaped confession. Um, and but he wouldn't tell them where his friend was. He just told them what he did, how he did it, and everything. And he went to jail. Eventually, they did find his friend. They went into court. Uh, they were charged with a number of crimes in state court because it was a state offense. And um, they went, the prosecutor offered them a plea. I think it was a five-year sentence. They accepted it. When they went in to take the sentence, the prosecutor gets up and says, Your Honor, I dismissed the case against these defendants. They didn't know why, but they dismissed it. They, they were happy. They were walking out of court. U.S. Marshals comes and arrest them in court. Now they're charged with federal offenses. And they're facing 30 to life. Oh, God. His, his partner was offered 10 years. He took it, and he went to federal prison. They offered him, the guy I've visually represented, 20 years. He's the one who confessed. He told the whole thing. He told everything that he had done. Uh, hour and a half videotape confession. But they they gave him 20 years. They wanted to offer 20 years. He couldn't take it. He went through three years. He went through three different lawyers for three years until all his money was gone. He asked me for help. I look at his case, and I agree to help him. Um, long story short, we went to trial because they wouldn't give him. They would. They wanted him to do 20 years. He wouldn't do. We went to trial, and the jury heard the confession, looked at the hour and a half videotape, heard everything he said. The people in the house came in and pointed him out. Yeah, he did it, and obviously he admitted because he confessed to it. But the jury found him not guilty. All right, and, and here's this is this is this is this is an incredible case, and this is a, a really motivating case because I, I agreed to represent him, knowing he was guilty, and I told the jury he was guilty. But here's what happened when I looked at his case, and this is something important for me to say because people need to understand the nuances of why even people that are guilty sometimes it's important that they be that they be handled and that they be treated fairly. What happened was that the state and the government got together to dismiss the state case so that he can be punished in federal court so that he can get a life sentence. Mm. 
And what what they did was, in in doing this, they charged him with a crime that the federal government didn't even have jurisdiction to entertain. Okay, he he was guilty of the state crime, but he was not guilty of a federal offense because the federal government doesn't have jurisdiction over most crimes. The people don't really understand this. People don't understand. They see federal government arresting people all the time for things, but they don't understand that there's certain elements that the federal government has to satisfy in order to have jurisdiction over a case. I saw that the federal government didn't have jurisdiction over the case. I couldn't convince the judge that this was the case, but I was able to convince the jury, who's the most important people, who mm-hmm. that's where you have a chance. Most people don't believe that. But if you're a good lawyer, you have a better chance at a jury and getting justice than you have with anyone else, if you're a good lawyer. So I convinced the jury, 12 people who listened to this man confess to this crime, that he was innocent. Not of the crime itself, but innocent of a federal crime. All right? So now here's why that's important. This is what this is what happens when you do the wrong thing to people and the right person challenges you. When that when that federal jury found him not guilty, the guy's name is Jason Thomas. Thompson, I'm sorry, Jason Thompson. It's United States versus Jason Thompson. I want to say the whole case name because this is such an incredible thing that I want people to be able to go and look at it and research it. United States versus Jason Thompson, it was tried in the federal court in New Jersey before federal judge Chechi. That was the judge who was tried before, and I tried the case by myself, and I won it, and he was guilty. So here's what happens, right? When the federal jury found this man not guilty, this is the problem that they created for themselves. His state case now was already dismissed, but now they had to let him go. Because they dismissed the state case so that they can make sure that he does life in prison. Instead of go ahead and giving him the plea that they offered him so he can do his time for the things he'd done, they dismissed it in order to take him to a place he did not belong as a crime so that he can get life in prison. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, I got you. Let me tell you something. What would have happened? Seriously, we have a few more minutes. What would have happened if you didn't defend him? What have happened if he didn't get take the case? He'd be in prison now. He, he'd be in prison now for life. That's 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 the yeah. sad part. So he was blessed yeah. that you that you even took the case. But yeah. this 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 has really been interesting. I wish you could do something that I needed done. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Uh, when you write sure. the book, I want to get a copy of it. I want the first one, and okay. another interview. You have. <laughs> I want to thank you so much. This has really been enlightening. For those of you that haven't read Mark for Life, I have all the information on Facebook. I'm going to put it on Twitter and link it in, and I belong to so many people. And when I write um, a review or if I write something on Facebook, everybody reads it. Everybody reads what I write. So guarantee wow. people are going to want to read this. Thank you so much, Isaac. Everybody, it's a beautiful day outside. Have a great day, and bye. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.